Welcome to Scam This. This week is President Biden's one-year anniversary in office, and to mark the occasion, he held a press conference where he gave his team an A for effort. It's a year of challenges, but it's also been a year of enormous progress. But not everyone sees Biden's report card the same way. Key legislation, including the voting rights bill, has failed in the Senate. Not to mention, Biden's also dealing with Russian aggression, a new COVID surge, and inflation. So today, we caught up with White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki about what Biden's prioritizing for year two. Our number one priority is getting the pandemic under control. And people should know we are not going to live like this forever. Meanwhile, with return to office dates being pushed back for millions of Americans, we asked one reporter, are we going to be stuck in work from home limbo forever? I heard so many people who had anxiety about not knowing what was going to happen or having a date and kind of staring it down. We've also got the latest on this week's biggest stories. Why UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in hot water, the ongoing feud between airlines and wireless companies, and how to get your hands on free N95 masks and COVID tests. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up... Democrats failed to pass a federal voting rights bill in the U.S. Senate late on Wednesday and a major setback ahead of midterm elections later this year. Usually, we don't talk about what Congress fails to do, but this particular debate over voting rights was a big deal. On Wednesday, Senate Republicans blocked Democrats from advancing key voting rights legislation. After that motion failed, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer tried to do something else and brought up another vote to change the Senate's filibuster rules, with the hope that changing them could advance the bill. That also failed, thanks not only to Republicans, but also to two Democrats. Those measures were never expected to succeed, but Democratic leadership decided to bring them up anyway, to highlight a crisis in voting rights here in the U.S. As we come up on Biden's one-year anniversary in office, a lot of people are saying, if the Democrats have the White House and both branches of Congress, why is a lot of legislation, including this voting rights legislation, going nowhere? And the answer, at least for now, seems to be that Democrats can't even play nice among themselves. This is all bad news for the party going into midterms, where Democrats seem even more likely to lose their majority. So it's technically crunch time for Dems to get anything done, even if it doesn't actually seem that way based on their own infighting. As for how the rest of Biden's one year in office went, we'll get into that in a bit. All right, next headline. If you think air travel's bad during this severe weather and amid the COVID sickouts, just wait until 5G is deployed on Wednesday. Here's the context. This week, AT&T and Verizon, which are two of the country's biggest wireless providers, rolled out 5G service. 5G is up to 100 times faster than 4G, which means quicker downloads, clearer pictures, and more bandwidth. But even though it's been years in the making, 5G's rollout is kind of running on 1G speed. That's in part because of airlines, who've been saying, hold the phone. For months, they've been asking the wireless carriers to delay their rollout because 5G interferes with radio frequencies that help pilots with navigation and with seeing how far from the ground the plane is when they're flying, which is crucial for things like landing in bad weather. The president of Emirates Airlines called the rollout one of the most delinquent, utterly irresponsible issues he'd seen in his aviation career. 
while AT&T's firing back, noting that they're frustrated that we can't roll out 5G here in the U.S. while 40 other countries have already done so safely. Still, even though it seems like there's a war of words, airlines, regulators, and the telephone giants said they'd work together on a solution, and some compromises have already been made. AT&T and Verizon have delayed their plans to switch on their new 5G antennas near certain airports. Not great news if you need to download Netflix before your flight, but it is good news for some airlines, which want to minimize delays. So far, 90% of the 5G expansion will continue as planned, though it's still unclear when the rest of the rollout will be ready for takeoff. Okay, next headline. It was terrifying. It was overwhelming. Uh, and we're still processing. That was the rabbi from the Texas synagogue where a gunman held four people hostage on Saturday, describing the incident to CBS News. Here's what went down. In the middle of a Sabbath service that was being live-streamed near Fort Worth, a gunman entered the synagogue and held four people hostage. The rabbi helped two hostages escape and managed to escape himself, while the remaining two were freed after the FBI arrived and killed the gunman in a standoff. It turns out the gunman was a British national and was demanding the release of a Pakistani neuroscientist currently serving an 86-year sentence at a nearby jail for attempting to kill U.S. soldiers. Why the gunman chose that synagogue is still unclear, but many people saw echoes of the 2018 Tree of Life shooting when a gunman entered a Pittsburgh synagogue and killed 11 people. And the Jewish community, which experiences the majority of reported religious-based hate crimes in the U.S., has seen a wave of violence recently, with an estimated one in four Jews experiencing anti-Semitism in the past year alone. Now, in the wake of Saturday, Jewish and Muslim communities are concerned about future attacks and are focused on securing their places of worship going forward. And our final headline. First, it was the free COVID test, now free masks. They are coming your way. Well, technically, you still have to order them, but they are free. Here's the deal. As Omicron continues to spread throughout the country, the White House said this week every U.S. household can get four rapid tests for free. Go to covidtests.gov, click order free at-home tests, and then put in your address. Shipping is expected to begin later this month. And besides ramping up testing, doctors have been saying at this point in the pandemic, cloth masks aren't going to cut it. So this week, the White House announced it's distributing 400 million N95 masks to thousands of locations, like pharmacies and community health centers all over the country. These N95s are getting sent out soon, so people can upgrade their mask game by early February. Today marks one year since Joe Biden was sworn in as the president of the United States. Biden's win came with a laundry list of promises on everything from climate change to immigration to the economy. And yesterday, he held a press conference where he celebrated his wins. We've seen record job creation, record economic growth in the past year. Now, thanks to the bipartisan infrastructure bill, we're about to make a record investment in rebuilding America to take us to be the number one best infrastructure in the world. And also acknowledged some fails. Should we have done more testing earlier? Yes. One thing I haven't been able to do so far is get my Republican friends to get in the game of making things better in this country. 
Over the past few months, Biden's approval rating has continued to slide as COVID cases hit new highs, prices soar for everyday goods, and legislation that's supposed to fund everything from universal pre-K to climate incentives has basically gone nowhere. Biden did follow through on one major campaign promise, withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan. But even as he ended America's longest war, the Taliban swooped right in and regained control of the country. So it's safe to say Biden's report card for year one is kind of a mixed bag. As for what's coming up in 2022, Biden said he's still holding out hope that his social infrastructure plan, aka the Build Back Better bill, can make it through Congress, even if it's just in pieces. I'm confident we can get uh, pieces, big chunks of the uh, Build Back Better law signed into law. And Biden also made headlines when he said he expects Russian President Vladimir Putin to invade Ukraine. My guess is he will move in. To hear more about what to expect from Team Biden in year two, we caught up with White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. So my first question for you is looking at the one year anniversary of Biden being the president. Can you tell me one win, one fail and one thing the administration wants to do this year? Sure. One win was getting 210 million people vaccinated because that's going to help return people to normal life. Uh, one fail was not getting voting rights passed. Um, that would, we knew it would be an uphill challenge, but that's something we still have more work to do. Uh, and then one thing we're still working on is voting rights and protecting people's fundamental rights in the country. A lot of Americans have seen key campaign issues like paid family leave or free community college get unaddressed. And I'm curious how you would explain to someone listening why the administration has had to back away from some of those priorities. Yeah, I mean, the president and I talked about him with him about this last night. He does not feel he's backing away. The challenge we have to explain it to uh, to people who are reading and listening is that we only have 50 votes in the Senate. Uh, we have a very slim majority in the Senate. And so we can only pass things through a process called reconciliation if you have every single Democrat supporting a package to move it forward. And the president supported paid leave. He supported uh, increased funding for community college. He's going to keep fighting for it. Um, but we need right now every per every Democrat to support it in order to move it forward. Considering the president ran on a platform that he could uniquely create compromise, is he concerned that Democrats and in particular two senators aren't coming together to compromise on issues like voting rights? And I'm curious what the administration's plan is to get the Democrats house in order and get the votes that you need. Well, one is to get more Democrats elected, which everybody can help be a part of so that we don't have such a slim majority. But uh, look, I think that there are a lot of steps we have taken as a United Democratic Caucus and party that are good. Uh, you know, we passed an infrastructure bill. That means that lead pipes around the country are being replaced and kids are going to have clean drinking water. Everybody's going to have clean drinking water around the country. That's a good thing. It also means broadband access. We're all living at home, working from home. A lot of people uh, will be expanded uh, high-speed internet across the country. That's a good thing. Uh, we also passed the American Rescue Plan. Also a good thing. Schools are open. That's a good thing. Uh, but, you know, there is agreement on voting rights, actually. There's not agreement on changes to the the Senate rules. Uh, and unless you change the Senate rules, you actually need 60 votes to move uh, legislation forward. The president thinks we should change the Senate rules, but there's not agreement on that. Uh, so we'll have to keep working at it. 
The messaging around COVID-19 has been confusing for a lot of people in our audience. And one example is a joke made last month about sending Americans COVID tests at home. And then now that exact situation is happening. How are you going to prepare Americans for more COVID policy shifts? Well, this is an unpredictable virus, and we've never experienced it before as a country. And so what we're continuing to do is assess what we can do better. Uh, and that means that uh, we take steps and uh, add to policy in order to make things easier for people in the country, right? So on testing, which I know has been frustrating, trying to go to your CVS and get a test, hopefully people can get one now. People can now go on a website and order tests for free. Uh, we, we are not sending tests to everybody in the country, and that was the question that was asked at the time. That's still not our policy, uh, but we are, we've always been thinking about ways to make them more accessible and free. So what we started doing was uh, expanding and opening free testing sites, 20,000 of them across the country. Uh, we, we sent 50 million tests actually to community health centers and rural health centers in December. And this is building on that. We now have 500 million tests. The president announced we're ordering an additional 500 million tests uh, and people can go to the website and order them. But that's only one way that people can get uh, free tests. But do you think that there's a messaging problem? Because based on talking to my peers, it seems like people are at, at the minimum confused. Well, it's our job to, to make people less, to help provide accurate information, to make people less confused. Uh, what is challenging and contributes to that is that uh, the data is changing, the science is changing, and it's an unpredictable virus. And because of that, our health experts update the guidance and update and tell people what they can or can't do. And that is confusing for people. We get that. Um, but, you know, it's a difficult problem. And the best thing we can do is continue to provide accurate information and make sure people know what they can do to protect themselves. Can you skim the administration's plan to tackle inflation in year two? Sure. Uh, how long is a skim? Give me a, give me a time frame. Like 60 seconds. Okay, I'm gonna do my best. Okay, one, uh, addressing issues in the supply chain means making sure that we are moving more goods, fixing our ports, which we've already made progress on, repairing our roads, repairing our bridges. Two, uh, it also means addressing areas and industries where costs are too high. Car industry, auto industry accounts for one third of inflation. We need to get more manufacturing of chips that go into cars. That's why there aren't enough cars on the market uh, funded so we can have more cars people can buy. Three, we need to go after competition. There's uh, anti-competitive behavior in some industries like the meat industry. The meat prices at your grocery store are not up because of inflation. They are up because uh, the meat uh, industry uh, and conglomerates are very greedy and they are charging you skyrocketing prices. So we need to attack it from multiple fronts. And my next question for you is, we've also seen the administration either go back on or fail to show up on some specific campaign promises around climate change, stopping new oil and gas drilling on federal land, getting the DOJ to support climate lawsuits. Can you talk about some of the specific policy moves going forward that are going to help the administration reach those ambitious goals? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, we are absolutely committed and the president is obsessed with getting the climate component uh, of Build Back Better passed. That's $550 billion. That is historic. It's never been that size before, uh, investment addressing the climate crisis. But we're also doing more than that, investing in wind, uh, moving towards a more renewable energy, electric vehicles, a uh, way of moving around the country. And we're going to keep building on that. 
As you referenced, there are some legal challenges that we've had to deal with as it relates to oil and gas drilling. That doesn't mean that's our preference or our policy. That means uh, there are legal challenges that that uh, we have to uh, adopt to it sometimes. In terms of foreign policy, a lot of this year was taken up by Russia, despite kind of a clear administration desire to focus on China. That doesn't seem like it's going away. I'm curious, has Putin stolen the administration's foreign policy agenda away? Absolutely not. I would say that our objective is still to move toward a more predictable relationship with Russia. And what people don't see, and I'm glad you asked me about, is all the work happening on China behind the scenes. A big part of our China agenda and approach is is strengthening our, uh, our economic circumstances at home. That's why it's been so pivotal to pass domestic legislation, why it's so good that we've created a record number of jobs. The unemployment rate is low. We're going to rebuild our uh, infrastructure, make us more competitive. Uh, it's also about rebuilding our alliances around the world. They were frayed after the last president, and we need more friends around the world in order to have a strategic and smart approach to China. That's been a huge focus of ours behind the scenes, uh, and we can do that while also making clear to Russia that if they invade, there'll be a significant consequences. Invade Ukraine, there'll be significant consequences. What is the number one, if you had to pick one, White House priority for the next nine months before midterms? And how are you going to get it done? Oh, God, I can't pick one. It's like picking one child. Um, Okay, I'm ready. Look, our number one priority is getting the pandemic under control. And people should know we are not going to live like this forever. Uh, We have the tools we need to address this. Uh, And we have had uh, huge developments of of late, of recently, including the Pfizer pill, which is a game changer. We ordered 20 million of those. Uh, And so that is our number one priority. It's connected to the economy. It's connected to the supply chain. Uh, It's connected to everybody's ability to live their lives like they want to. Um, And so that will continue to be our top priority. Jen, thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Great chatting with you. Calls for British Prime Minister Boris Johnson to resign are reaching a fever pitch. Last month, reporters in England spilled the tea and revealed that Johnson had broken pandemic lockdown rules back in May 2020 when he attended a garden party held at 10 Downing Street, which is also his home and office. But even though these are old accusations, they're creating a ton of fresh political drama. In recent days, the UK Prime Minister continues to insist he thought it was a work meeting, and that he wasn't warned the event broke the rules. Especially since this isn't the only time Johnson's been accused of breaking the rules, while asking everyone else in Britain to follow them. We'll break down what's going on across the pond in 60 seconds. Back in May 2020, people living in the UK were under strict lockdown. Group gatherings were banned, and people couldn't even visit their dying relatives in the hospital. Johnson has insisted that he thought the garden gathering he went to back then, which had plenty of wine and cheese, was a work meeting and not a party. I'm absolutely categorical. Nobody said to me, this is an event that is against the rules, uh, that is in breach of uh, what we're asking everybody else to do. Here's the catch. Johnson's secretary sent out the email invitation, which included the line, bring your own booze, to dozens of employees. Doesn't exactly scream important work meeting, right? As for Johnson's claim that he didn't know it was a party, people living in the UK were banned from large gatherings, whether indoors or outdoors. And as prime minister, Johnson's administration actually set the rules he's been accused of breaking. 
Plus, Johnson allegedly attended more illegal parties over the following months, including regular gatherings dubbed Wine Time Fridays, because that's a super discreet name for an illegal gathering. Needless to say, this isn't going down great with the British public, some of whom put on blonde wigs and bojo masks to stage a protest in front of Number 10 Downing Street last week, complete with wine bottles in hand. Now, a senior civil servant is leading an internal inquiry to figure out if Johnson knowingly broke his own rules, and the findings are due at the end of this month. And while it could prove damaging for Johnson's public image, whether he actually resigns, which he insists he won't, is still his choice. The only other way to get rid of Johnson is a long, kind of annoying and uncertain process that goes through Parliament, although there's still a chance that could happen. This week, even Johnson's longtime allies stood up in Parliament and joined growing public calls for Johnson to resign. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. So not even saying sorry for partying could be enough to save Johnson's job. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Over the past two weeks, as COVID cases have continued to spike in the U.S., a lot of companies have had to pump the brakes on their return-to-office plans. And this wasn't their first time doing so. The Delta variant had already caused major delays for getting people back to work, with businesses pushing RTO dates from the fall to early 2022. And now Omicron is shifting those dates again. According to one survey from this week, Three quarters of major employers in New York City, which is the most populated city in the country, have delayed their return to office because of Omicron. And around two-thirds of those employers said, we probably won't be back by March. These RTO delays are also hitting all different industries. Major banks like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, who had been leading the charge that employees come back IRL, flip-flopped and said, stay home at least for now. And huge tech companies like Microsoft, Meta, and Apple also delayed their return to office, even in Microsoft's case, after committing to building new campuses. But even if you don't work in finance or tech, you or someone you know has definitely had a return to office date canceled. So we wanted to know, are we finally past the point of literally no return? Now to see so many companies say, we're scrapping the date idea, like we're sick of having six different penciled in dates. We're not going to do that anymore. We're either like explicitly acknowledging that this is our future, or we're even just like kind of implicitly acknowledging that by saying, we're not even going to try to set a date here. I think it is like we've moved into this new era. That's Rachel Feinzig, the Wall Street Journal's work and life columnist. And she told us she wasn't surprised to see so many companies, despite outwardly pushing to get people back into the office, reverse course. One, the talent market is so hot. I just think companies are losing people. and They have to make a change at that point if top performers are leaving. And then two, I had heard from sources that some companies were outwardly putting out these edicts, but were either allowing flexibility for certain people, certain teams, but were kind of keeping in the back pocket this idea of like, we feel like we need to draw a line in the sand now, but we are open to having more flexibility in the future. So I think even if Omicron hadn't happened, that might have kind of been in the cards. Not being in that limbo period with a back-to-office date staring at you on your calendar can be a good thing, especially for people's anxieties. But Feinzig told us a lot of us haven't actually contemplated a fully remote future. 
Sure, you got your Zoom login and new desk back in March 2020. And maybe you made some upgrades or tweaks to your setup or work from home routine last year. But we're going on year three of remote work, and the culture around remote work has a lot of unintended consequences. Over the past year, employees have cited record burnout, which is contributing to the unprecedented numbers of people quitting their jobs. But Feinzig told us companies aren't really prepared or even willing to handle this large-scale burnout and turnover. I think remote work is a big part of the problem. It's been messy, and I think there's an acknowledgement even from leaders and even from managers that this is not super productive, and yet no one really can kind of figure out how to really fix it. We have seen some of those, like, you know, senior level titles, like an engagement officer or a remote work officer. We've seen things like meditation classes or giving everyone a week off. I mean, what I have heard in much of my reporting about burnout is like, it often just comes down to less work, like saying no to that other team that wants something from you or a boss reducing someone's workload. You know, a lot of the times it's just about too much work and it's not the kind of thing that a yoga class can fix. I don't know if companies really get that. I don't know if they're ready to kind of let that productivity go. And beyond a burnout epidemic, there are other consequences of a remote work future that we just haven't felt the full effects of yet. I think employees get this to some degree. I think there's some portion of the downside they haven't experienced yet. There is kind of this honeymoon period for remote work that researchers have found and things like crippling loneliness or you not getting a promotion that you really want. I mean. Are there still just certain jobs that your company will not want someone to do from a different location or, you know, someone who, who doesn't have access to headquarters or you won't be on that project or in that meeting where you would have gotten visibility to take that next step for certain segments of the population for younger workers or people who want to be kind of climbing in their careers for women who may be at risk of having potentially more men back in the office or getting FaceTime in a way that, that they're not, remote work can present some challenges. But Feinzig says, as companies actually acknowledge a mostly or totally remote future for the first time, a lot of employees can finally breathe a sigh of relief and fully embrace the benefits of remote work. In general, I heard so many people who had anxiety about not knowing what was going to happen or having a date and kind of staring it down. If, if you do work for a company that has said like that period is over, I think that's huge for people. They feel like they can move where they want to move. They can make decisions about their families and just kind of move, move forward. I, I think that's hugely helpful for people. You feel like you have a little bit more control over your life. It's that sense of, for many people, like real productivity and creativity. They feel like I can hunker down at the time that makes most sense for me. I can blend my work and my life. I don't have to ask for permission to go to this doctor's appointment or to get my kid off the bus. And surely for some people, it's the opposite. Their boss is stalking them now that they can't see them and micromanaging them. But for many people, there is a sense of just having control over your life, having this work-life balance or integration or whatever you want to call it that people have kind of long dreamed of. It's become a reality. Whether your office is fully virtual, back in person, or a mix of the two, the new year is also promotion season at a lot of companies. But as Rachel Feinzig just shared, remote work and the pandemic have made moving up the ladder more complicated. I think the dynamics have changed quite a bit with so many people still working fully remote. I do think it takes more effort to try and build rapport and build a connection with your boss. 
That's Amanda Augustine, a career coach and the resident career expert for Top Resume. And today, she's gonna help us with one of our How to Skim Your Life challenges, skimming our humble brags, so that we can land that promotion, whether we're back in the office or not. Let's start with step one. I think the first thing you need to keep in mind is figure out exactly what you're asking for, because some people say promotion and they really just mean raise. They want more money. Whereas other people, they're looking for greater responsibility, more managerial responsibility, those sorts of things. So I think it's important to first just take a step back and say, okay, what do I really want to ask for? Once you've identified what you're looking for, don't just start slacking your boss. You've got to do some homework first. Once you have a better idea of what you want to ask for, then I think there's kind of two things you want to start working on. One is building your case, which includes researching, understanding what are the comp values out there? What's the type of title you're looking for? What would this role look like? As well as building your case to say, okay, what have I done recently that proves I'm a really great value add? and that I deserve this promotion, that I'm already showing I can take on these responsibilities if I haven't already, so that you can set up that conversation. Augustine told us, instead of keeping a mental note of your work accomplishments or assuming your boss remembers them, it's smart to create a more formal list. Something that I'm a huge advocate for is building what I call your brag book. And it could be a physical book, a Word doc, a Google doc. You could be using an app like Evernote. But there's some place where you are regularly recording little wins and big wins alike. So there are some obvious ones. What goals have been set for you over the past year, past quarter, and how did you meet or exceed those? And it's writing down the nitty-gritty details. I was expected to churn out X amount of articles or complete this project on time. Then I think there are a lot of other examples that show, well, how have I gone above and beyond? Or how do I demonstrate I'm a value add to this organization? It could be that you got some really amazing testimonials from a customer or a client. Have you stepped up and helped run a meeting that was outside your realm? Or you stepped up and you helped with a project that was in addition to your extra work. Once you've got that brag book together, you might be thinking, okay, can I talk to my manager now? And Augustine told us, yes, but the timing here is key. It often does kind of depend on what's that company culture and do they have any standards set in place. So in some companies, it's only around review time that we are going to issue promotions or raises. And so you want to start planting the seeds well before that conversation is going to take place. And one thing I would say is if you know people who have successfully negotiated a raise or promotion at your company and it's someone that you feel comfortable approaching, I would ask for 10, 15 minutes of their time and just say, how did you do it? What did you do? If you have one of those companies where there, it doesn't seem to be a regular schedule for giving promotions or raises, or frankly, you just can't find any information, I think you want to start that conversation. The next time you have a one-on-one with your boss, you probably say, you know, this is something I'm interested in. I would love to set up a formal time to discuss this with you. According to Augustine, once that official convo has started, you can and should ask your manager about next steps. You don't want to play the guessing game for too long. You want to leave that initial conversation actually kind of asking them for a better sense of when should you follow up? Should you follow up? Ask your boss, what could I be doing now that would help you? Is there anything that you already know that I should be working on to improve so I can put my best case forward? And in the meantime, it doesn't hurt to spotlight your accomplishments a bit more. 
But Augustine told us, you're not alone if you feel like that's gotten harder or just more uncomfortable to do in a remote environment. Still, there are some ways you can humble brag without making your Zoom meetings more awkward than they already are. What different communication channels are already set up where it would make sense to do something like this and not come out of the complete blue and, and seem really unnatural? Do we have a general Slack channel where I could say, great news, this happened? Or is there an email that I could send out to a few people to make sure they're aware of this cool thing that happened? Is there an appropriate meeting within my department or at a larger scale where I could ask to present some findings from something I was working on or, or a cool project or initiative that I was a part of? And finally, it's important to keep in mind that even if you don't land that promotion this time around, you can still use this process to make progress in your career. You do have to think of it from the perspective of this is a learning experience. This is not the end of my career. I'm not retiring tomorrow. And so learn from this now so I know what to do. And I'm only going to get better and more confident at asking for what I want and what I believe I deserve. I always think it's important to ask for feedback. So may I ask why this request was turned down? Is there a skill that I need to build? Is there something else I need to prove? And make that a goal for yourself. Whether or not your boss is willing to bake that into your goals at the company, give yourself a personal goal. I feel like this is a big buzzword right now, but we keep hearing about micro career goals. And micro career goals are basically mini goals that are helping you ultimately hit milestones to achieve a larger goal, such as a raise or promotion. So if you set some smaller micro career goals for yourself, whether it's developing a certain skill, getting better at a certain communication style, speaking up in meetings, but give yourself some sort of goal that you're working towards with ultimate deadlines and check-in periods so that if and when you have that conversation again in say three months or six months or whatever it might be, you can also come back and say, this is the feedback I received and here's how I've been actively working to fill those gaps or improve those areas. So again, continue the self-promotion, even if it's not specifically related to your corporate goals, but it's more related to improving yourself so that you're a better candidate for this promotion that you really want. If you want to follow along with the rest of the How to Skim Your Life Challenge, head on over to theskim.com slash challenge for more. Here's a PSA for anyone looking for new things to watch. Sundance Film Festival starts today, and this year, you don't have to be a Hollywood agent or actor to get in on the action. Sundance, which is kind of like the cool younger cousin of the movie industry's traditional film festivals, normally takes place IRL in a small town in Utah. But during the pandemic, Sundance pivoted to online screenings, something it's continuing for 2022. We had previously invited the world to come to Sundance. Now we want to take Sundance to the world. That's Tabitha Jackson, the festival director for Sundance. She told us even though Sundance might seem like a smaller festival for the indie film community, it's become one of the most important cultural events of the year and one that influences the entire entertainment industry. I had always wanted to work for Sundance because it was like this beacon of independence and kind of fun and, and a little bit subversive, a little bit maverick. Robert Redford, iconic actor, founded the Sundance Institute in 1981 to support and develop work made by filmmakers who were not getting seen or funded by the studios. So this was an outlet for all those ideas, all that independent work and vision. 
became the Sundance Film Festival in 1985. Some of the best-known directors today launched their careers at Sundance, like the Coen brothers, Steven Soderbergh, David O. Russell, and it doesn't stop there. It's launched the careers of people like Quentin Tarantino and Ava DuVernay and Taika Waititi and Alison Anders, the kinds of people with the kinds of perspectives that were not being embraced by the mainstream or the market. Sundance has also been the festival that helps diverse storytellers and diverse stories break into Hollywood. Last year, around half of the filmmakers showcased by the festival were female, half were people of color, 15% were LGBTQ+, and 4% were non-binary. It's because of Sundance that future Oscar-winning movies like Minari and Get Out reached mainstream audiences. Although actually getting those movies in front of audiences gets kind of difficult when there's a global pandemic which is one of the reasons Jackson says Sundance is doing something different this year. Sundance Film Festival has an incredible explosion of creativity, and all this is accessible right across our social platform, which is called The Spaceship, is available right across the world. Everybody can experience the festival from the comfort of their own home and doing whatever watch parties they want to with the people around them. The spaceship is basically like a virtual movie theater. You can create an avatar, walk around, and discuss movies you've seen with other attendees, which is great for introducing indie films to new audiences and for filmmakers who don't have to throw a ton of budget towards going to the festival in person. And that accessibility is super important right now. The film industry has basically been in crisis throughout the pandemic, and indie filmmakers got hit particularly hard because they typically have less money to throw at projects to begin with. Studios have had the cash to sink into providing things like PPE and testing for film crews, while low-budget movies may not be able to afford to keep their productions running. So by widening the audience for this year's festival, Sundance is trying to ensure that independent movies survive and get the credit they deserve. Beyond just your friend who thinks they're basically a movie critic. Jackson told us delivering on that mission is critical, since it's indie films that are really capturing what people are experiencing and feeling right now, while big studios continue to crank out superhero movies with more CGI and sound effects than actual storylines. Over the last two years, we've gone through an incredible societal change. The people, I think, who are most adept at making sense of that and allowing us to understand this new world we are in are the independent filmmakers. They're on the front foot. And so we, we have a hunger for that work because we're trying to make sense of it too and be transported and entertained and provoked. Among this year's offerings, 52% of the directors showing at Sundance are female. Everyone from up-and-coming directors like Nick Yatu Jusu and Mariama Diallo to big names like Tig Notaro. It's so vibrant and rich and I think there is something for everybody to get a complete list of what's playing, head to festival.sundance.org. We'll leave a link in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had additional help this week from Sajin Coriellis. The Skim senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. And until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. 
and Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us. 